0: We're all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this.
1: All right, I am starting us off this week, and I want you to imagine that you are walking through a lush rainforest on a tropical island. There are beautiful, fragrant flowers, towering trees, Mm -hmm. vines, everywhere. Mm.
0: Kirk? Gorgeous. Gorgeous. Rachel. Yeah, I'm all in. What kind
1: of noises would you expect to hear on your lovely hike through the rainforest? Well I'm
0: I'm I'm hearing birds, you know. Mm-hmm. You would that's hear birds. I'm yeah, hearing I got, my, I got my bins out and I'm searching for that lifer. <laughs> that that's me.
2: Yeah. I am hearing just a lot of buzzing and all the insects, maybe hearing some birds singing. Uh hopefully I'm hearing things and the forest isn't dead quiet because that means I am in danger and I need to leave.
1: Well, I hate to tell you, but the forest is quiet. Oh, Gee, I'm getting out of there. But it's not. It's, oh. Yeah. Well, the problem is you don't hear any birds. There are no bird calls. There are no bird songs. <laughs> there are no birds <laughs> chattering to each other. There are no alarm bird calls space.
0: either, though. Hold on. I don't understand why I'm here in the first <laughs> place. If there's no birds in this forest, why am I even there? This you are so insulted
2: fishy. looking.
1: <laughs> and there are so
0: many spider webs.
1: Oh, Ooh, no. Yes. No, that's I'm not the that,
0: that alternative. I'm
1: this back is in. Sorist. This Rachel's <laughs> forest. This is a very sad story, I'm sorry to say. This is a sad true story uh, of Guam, which is an island in the Pacific. And right. it is an extreme case of what happens when an invasive species hits a vulnerable ecosystem.
0: This is the story starting us, sad. starting us off on yeah. a high note on this week's yeah, this show. Is, this is going to be it. a bit of
1: a downer,
2: I'm afraid. I take it back. This is no longer my favorite place. Yeah. Um So
1: this is the story of the brown tree snake on Guam. The brown tree snake, uh scientific name is Boiga irregularis. Its native range is northern Australia, Papua New Guinea, and other parts of eastern Indonesia. And it's... Mm-hmm. um <clears throat> It's it's a colubrid, which is kind of like the regular snake group is the way I like to think about it. They're not your cobras or your rattlesnakes. Most of them are non-venomous or only mildly venomous. Uh, this one has rear fangs. It does have mild venom, but it's not really
0: dangerous to humans.
1: It's a tree climber, spends most of its time up in the in the
0: branches uh it eats Oh good. I I always love the idea of a, a snake that can possibly drop down onto me as I hike in the woods. Well, there's I hate
2: I hate to tell you this, but there's uh you know, the western fox snake that <clears throat>
0: is, you know,
2: around it. S- semi arboreal, yeah. Yeah.
0: Never seen one in a tree though.
1: Fair enough. So they eat birds, lizards, bats, small rodents. Uh in their native range, they grow up to about 2 meters long, which is Around six feet. That's too long. <laughs> it's, it's pretty big.
0: Uh yeah, it's like the size of a bull snake. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah bigger than me. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's true.
0: Fair. That's the measure. Is the <laughs> snake bigger than Rachel or smaller than Rachel? It's about as big as Kirk. <laughs> okay. Although a
1: lot oh, okay. skinnier. It's a it's a quite a thin snake. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, you're implying
2: things
0: here. I mean, I'm sure it is, but. <laughs> I think she just in, in, impugned my uh, <laughs> reputation or something. I don't know.
1: I mean, I would be amazed if we found a two-meter snake that was as
0: wide as you, Kirk. Because snakes are just—you're not helping here. The situation. <laughs> You're making it sound worse. Let's just move along.
1: Let's yeah. Let's 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 drop that subject. So it's a fairly thin snake. It has a big wedge-shaped head, and it's kind of most uh, most distinguishing characteristic is it has uh, cat eyes, so it has vertical slit pupils make it look right yeah menacing it's brown or kind of yellowy <laughs> tan has a subtle pattern on it and so this story of invasion is the result of centuries of colonization and then war so Guam is home to the Chamorro people it was first colonized by Spain in the 16th century and then It came under American control after the Spanish-American War in 1898, when we also got the Philippines. And it served as a naval yard in the Pacific for American ships. Then in World War II, of course, it was invaded by the Japanese, uh, I think it was the day after Pearl Harbor. So December of 1941, and then finally recaptured by the U.S. in August of 1944. But then after that, it continued to serve as a major transportation hub in the Pacific, And we don't know for sure exactly the date the snake made its way to Guam, but it was sometime after the war and before, around 1952, uh, probably on a cargo ship or in the landing gear of an aircraft. Makes sense. So it was first detected in the early 1950s on Guam. By the mid-60s, it had spread over half the island, and by 1968, its conquest was complete. Wow. And... People actually don't see this snake that much in person. It's it's pretty secretive. It's up in the trees, but they sure notice the effect because in the wake of it, Guam's birds started to disappear. Now, according to the source I was looking at, uh, it was a little inconsistent whether it was 14 or 11 bird species that Guam had terrestrial birds. So this is not counting like seabirds. Um, 12 or perhaps nine of those species are now thought to be extirpated on the island. So that means completely gone off of Guam. Some of these species were endemic. um, So that means that they were found nowhere else, species or subspecies. Some of them are found now only in captivity and captive breeding programs. And so it's been just a bloodbath for, for Guam's birds In some ways, you have to really admire the snake in that it's so perfectly suited to its lethal role. Uh, There were no similar, there's one other snake on Guam, but it's it's a very mild little underground dwelling snake and it doesn't climb trees. So the birds had no evolved defenses against a tree climbing snake like this. It's a very Mm -hmm. generalist predator, so it'll eat pretty much anything it can catch. Uh, And there are no native predators of the snake either. So it really has pretty much nothing eating it. And it's hard to find. Mm -hmm. It's well camouflaged. So uh, this was obviously very bad news for Guam's birds and for the rest of the ecosystem. Among other things, uh, insects and spiders have just hugely jumped in population. And Guam is now also more vulnerable to invasive insect species because the insect eating birds are gone.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, sure,
1: sure. And faced with this all-you-can-eat banquet on Guam, the snakes have exceeded uh, their natural length that they usually reach, and now grew up to three and a half meters or 11 feet. Absolutely what? not.
2: <laughs> what? Yeah, three what? and a half meters. I'm. That's oh. 11. That is. That is the ceiling, Victoria.
1: That's yeah. it's a long snake
2: also that's,
1: a, that's
0: an that's extra tall ceiling
1: on the yeah. on the even weirder end they
2: cause it gets weirder
1: on average once every three days a power outage
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: i'm sure they do yeah <laughs> well
0: if you're that long yep. so
1: mm-hmm. they can climb up electrical poles just as well as they can climb up trees and then they slither of across course. the wires and cause short circuits oh. To the tune of thousands of dollars of damage every
0: year. Um, yeah, I know around around where we live. If you look at the the power poles, those the wires up on the top are a certain distance apart, and it's basically one raccoon <laughs> length plus a little bit. Because around here, <laughs> raccoons are the most likely animal to crawl up there and get a one wire and kind of reach out and try to grab the next one to walk across. So they try to make it like just wider than a raccoon but if you're dealing with an animal that's over three meters long you can't space the wires out that far like no that that
2: completely like it doesn't one it doesn't make fiscal sense and then what's the purpose of having wires two wires connected to the same that's so much infrastructure
0: yeah
2: so it gets a little weirder. So obviously these snakes are very
1: good climbers, but scientists recently discovered uh, just last year that they are doing something that no other snake is known to do. They have an entirely new form of snake locomotion. They can Uh, make, they can make a lasso with their bodies around a completely smooth pole. They, They hook the end of their tail around the middle of their body and just shimmy their
0: way up.
2: <clears throat> what?
0: Perfectly no, smooth a like, like a lumberjack, like with the... Yep. The, the
2: I'm picturing like,
0: like... Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm picturing
2: also like Mulan with her uh, straps going up the pole. Very
1: similar right. with to the that. the rock. Yep.
0: That is so cool.
1: So the way researchers found this was that they had uh, placed some of these endangered bird species that they're trying to breed, uh, they placed their nests on top of these perfectly smooth poles thinking the snakes would not be able to climb. And then they had uh, so some camera traps, uh, and discovered the snakes were in fact climbing up the poles,
2: and eating the little. That's crazy! Wow, that's terrible. Yeah. So sorry for your birds. <laughs> Not
0: great, but but. Uh, Pretty amazing. You know, when you when you're watching these interactions, it's like it's like buckthorn that we have in a lot of places where everyone says, "Oh, what an awful plant!" It's an amazing plant. We just don't care for the effect of how amazing it is. The same with these snakes. I mean, it's amazing. And in their native habitat,
1: they're perfectly fine. This ecosystem is adapted to them. So obviously this has been a disaster for Guam. And it's also a huge ongoing concern because Guam being a transportation hub, there's this constant fear that it's going to get exported to some other island or islands in the Pacific. So there are actually sniffer dogs that are trained by, I think it's by the U.S. Department of Defense, or maybe the Department of Agriculture, that uh, are supposed to inspect all the outgoing cargo from Guam. And scientists have been working over the years on various other methods to try to control them and uh, and contain them. So they have developed a pretty effective snake trap. They've developed poison baiting techniques. Actually, this is kind of a, <laughs> a weird detail. The, the poison that they found it, that is best for this is actually acetaminophen, Tylenol. Huh. Yeah. Wow nice and they're working on snake barriers for like uh protected ecological areas and for transportation hubs and they're also doing research on um, fumigants for cargo but it's just it's a terrible so situation bad. and it's just not getting better really so on that cheerful note <laughs> Made me really sad. Kirk, I hope you have something to cheer us up a little more after the
0: break. Uh, I wish I could say I did, and I don't. It's going downhill from here, folks. See you after the break. Kirk here with a quick note. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It helps other lovers of The Strange find our show. You can also find and follow us on social media. Search for Strange by Nature Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or come visit us at strangebynaturepodcast.com. We'll see you there. Now back to the show. Well, we're back and boy, I wish I could say that we were going uh, somewhere cheerful, but uh, Victoria, you mentioned actually, it's so funny how like these, our topics sometimes kind of line up. You mentioned that Guam was attacked uh, just shortly after Pearl Harbor. Well, Pearl Harbor was attacked on December 7th, 1941. And my story begins basically with the attack on Pearl Harbor. No way. It does. <laughs> That's crazy. But no. also,
2: I don't like how you're saying this is not going to be cheerful.
0: Yeah. So, But probably not in any way you would possibly imagine. Right. Uh, this obviously had a huge effect on people, uh, especially Americans, uh, when World War II was going on and then the Pearl Harbor was attacked and all of a sudden it became very real uh, for people in America. And I guess my story in some way starts about a month later in January of 1942. There was a dental surgeon named uh, Lytle S. Adams, and he had this brilliant idea for how the U.S. could basically seek revenge uh, on Japan as it entered World War II. Uh, You see, Adams had just taken a trip to Carlsbad Caverns, where he had learned about bats. Now, as professional naturalists, uh, I I, I think— We know a lot about the ecological services that bats provide. Bats Uh, are cool. Yeah, they're super cool. They're pollinators. They eat lots of insects that maybe we don't want around. Uh, They're just all around amazing creatures and an important part of the ecosystem. That doesn't seem to be the message that Adams got from his trip to the cave. It uh, turns out he was actually an acquaintance of Eleanor Roosevelt, hmm. and so he sent off a letter to the White House, and we have a little bit of that letter, so we know what he had to say. In this letter, <coughs> he refers to Bats as, quote, the lowest form of animal life. And he, uh, That's goes so on to far say,
2: from the truth.
0: Right. He goes on to say, quote, reasons for his creation actually you know actually like a mid-atlantic accent for this We'll say reasons for his creation have remained unexplained (laughs) so you know like that no one knows why there's bats right uh so what i can only assume is either there was no interpretation on the benefits of bats when he went to the cave or there was and he didn't understand it or he just wasn't paying attention uh he had an idea though and that maybe this lowest form of animal life could perhaps finally, finally be useful. Uh, he said they had been created, and I'll go back into the accent here, by God to await this hour and play their part in a scheme of free human existence and to frustrate any attempt at those who dare to desecrate our way of life. Oh, this is just gonna this be bananas. I don't even know where you're going with this, but I know it's gonna I be I have no
2: idea. I think I have yeah. I like, say actually that
0: shit. <laughs> yeah, that that's a phrase that comes to mind uh, This is a pretty showy language So what was Adam's big idea? Well, he had learned Which is something I think most of us know That bats are nocturnal And they seek to roost in caves or buildings Basically anywhere dark Once the sun comes up He also knew that in Japan Most houses were made of wood And, and even paper uh, For some of the walls and things So right. his proposal was to build a giant bomb filled not with explosives, but with bats. And each bat would have a small incendiary device and a tiny timer attached to it. And so if the bomb was dropped right at sunrise, the bats would disperse over a city, roost in the buildings. And when the timers went off, the bats would burst into flames and set thousands of fires all around the city, Hopefully burning it to the ground
2: I have so I'm many thoughts
0: speechless yeah, first
1: of
2: all, so poor bats mm-hmm. yeah, how dare any, those correct. poor bats second of all, how cruel of a human do you have to be not only to do that to bats but to want to just burn an entire city down. Via well, ben. let's
0: let's let's keep in mind. This was when they're also, you know, very shortly started working After, on the Manhattan mm-hmm. Project to work on the atomic bomb, which to do very the much same the same thing. thing. Well, yeah. and
1: uh, even before the atomic bomb, we were in fact firebombing yes. Japanese yep. and German cities to the and ground. The German, yeah, That's,
0: the the the, the firebombing yeah. of Dresden killed far more people than uh, the atomic bombs did. So. Uh, yeah, very true. Setting cities on fire was a tried and true tactic of war. Uh, so you might think this sounds absolutely batty, but apparently Roosevelt oh loved loved the idea uh, and thought it had real merit. So Adams was actually hired by the U.S. Army, and he assembled a team to make his vision a reality. They actually worked on this, you guys. Um, th- they got permission from the Park Service to collect bats from caves. How, yeah, dare so, <laughs> how dare they! How uh, dare they! They uh, said Rachel's very passionate about bats, so uh, they settled eventually after doing some experimenting on the Mexican free-tail bat as their preferred carrier, and they eventually actually tried out uh, with a chemist they were working with came up with a new concoction he wanted them to use called napalm.
1: I have heard of
0: that. Yes. I have heard of that as so well. So that's the incendiary they used. They found that each, I mean, the bats, they weighed like 14 grams. And whenever I say grams, people's eyes roll back in their head and they have no idea what I'm talking about. A gram is the weight of a large paperclip. Okay. So mm-hmm. these Mexican free tail bats weigh about 14 grams. Amazingly, on average, they could carry about 15 grams of napalm or any weight attached to their chest. They found that the best way to do it was to glue this little mini bomb to their chest.
2: That is pretty impressive.
0: Those are some strong bats. They, yeah, super impressive. They actually did build these. Uh, they developed a five-foot-long bomb that could hold 1,040 bats. Oh. And this would be dropped over a city by airplane, and it would descend on parachutes, and at the correct altitude, like the sides would you know, pop open or fall off or whatever, and the bats would then descend upon the city because they wanted to get out of the light. So the question is, did it work? Well, wait, wait. how
1: are they they feeding the bats like
0: um, that is not it never it never got to that point where they were like transporting this to the the um, the front lines. Okay, this is all experimental.
2: I just want you to think about the fact that just think you're a person in a city and you see what you think is a bomb coming down. (laughs) Right, right. And the flaps open. And a bunch of bats just fly out. Yeah. Like, we know what bats look like. But it's just a bunch of bats fly out. And then Like a bunch of little black
0: pieces of paper fluttering in the wind or something. Like, yeah.
2: And you're just like, what? Is this a propaganda bomb? What is going on? And then you go to sleep. And a few hours later...
0: Well, no, no. you, You would be waking up. This would be morning time.
2: Oh, okay. So...
0: But suddenly your house would burst into flames.
2: Your house is just on fire now. Yeah. That would be absolutely crazy.
0: Right. Uh, Now, to stress, this was never actually used. It turns out the progress was too slow. And again, we we talked about this. Once the atomic bomb was finished, there was no need for this anymore. Uh, Mm -hmm. It does sound like uh, it would have worked, though. At one point... Uh, and I love this phrase, armed bats. <laughs> <laughs> uh, bats that had been like fitted with their incendiary devices and whatnot. Uh, they escaped the building where they I were know. working. And uh, they the needed bats. to find some place to go. <laughs> yeah, well, guess where they decided to roost? Crow's they roosted cannons? under the big fuel tank uh, in what? the middle of the base. <gasps> no. And when they burst into flames the Carlsbad Army Airfield Auxiliary Air Base also burst into flames (laughs) and was heavily damaged.
1: It really was Revenge of the Bats. Oh, there's so so much karma.
0: Proof of concept, it worked. Uh, (laughs) And there are are photos out there of this base on fire because of this. Uh, They did also do, by the way, a a test with a complete mock Japanese village that had been built. uh, And they dropped them on there and they determined that it worked. Uh, The report on uh, like the results of that test. Uh, There's some quotes for that. Uh, They said um, that on like a a weight basis, a bat bomb was more effective than your standard incendiary bombs that the army was currently using. So this, uh, this is the quote here, expressed in another way, the regular bombs would give probably 167 to 400 fires per bomb whereas the bat bomb would give 3,625 to 4,748 fires.
2: That's so many fires.
0: Which, yeah. So so if you're going to have an incendiary bomb, they were like, hey, this actually is way more effective, and that's why they were working on trying to develop this. Uh, But, of course, they ended up not having a need for it. My final note on this actually kind of brings us a little bit full circle back to something you guys talked about was like, uh, I forget who was saying like, oh, this is so like, what a horrible! Th- I think Rachel like, what a horrible thing Probably to burn, yeah, yeah. burn your whole city to the ground! Like, what an awful thing! And granted, war is very awful. Uh, to the end, Adam stood behind or Adams uh, stood behind his bomb, saying that it was far more humane than the atomic bomb, because while it would cause catastrophic property damage, it started a bunch of very small fires, which gave people plenty of time to get out of their homes. And he thought that very few actual human lives would be lost using this bomb, whereas the atomic bomb just, you know, would, like, wipe out the whole city. So he, I think, viewed his work as being a far more humane type of bomb that could, like, destroy the city and demoralize the enemy, but not actually kill people. I mean, surely it would have killed some people. Um, But it's interesting that that was kind of his take Mm -hmm. on it. He was like, oh, this is the way we should have gone because it would uh, not have been as horrifying as an atomic bomb which is uh kind of interesting to ponder yeah but but to be clear to be clear we had been firebombing cities for a long time and that was not stopping the war and the atomic bomb like basically did stop the war so there i'm is- not sure i'm not sure it really would have held out that i uh, and made that difference the way he was thinking it would have
2: man world war ii is so weird when it can- comes to different animals being used
0: Well, yeah, I've got a few other topics we may discuss in future shows about that. But, you know, it it was a time when people, it was a time of great innovation, you know, uh, for better or worse. And people were looking for ways to do stuff, but they didn't quite have some of the technology we have now in terms of electronics and things. So people looked to the natural world to look for solutions and came up with some pretty wild things. things. Bat bombs. That's what I got for you. Very, very strange. I can tell you love nature because you're listening to this podcast and you want to do everything you can to keep it pristine and unpolluted. Look, plastic pollution is rapidly becoming one of the hottest environmental topics out there as we realize that most of it cannot be recycled and our disposable society means we are awash in plastic waste that will haunt us for generations. Our friends at EcoCasian.com recognize this all too well and are always searching for ways to help you remove plastic from your lives and from the environment. You've likely already heard about one of the hottest products they've sell and that's laundry strips. Everyone's talking about these things. They look like little fabric strips you place in your laundry, but they're actually super concentrated detergent. Say goodbye to all those bulky plastic laundry soap bottles and say hello to environmentally responsible living. Ecocasion.com is one of the largest and most trusted sellers of laundry strips in the world. It's their number one seller. You can check them out using our special Strange by Nature discount code at ecoccasio Type in Strange at checkout for 5% off your entire order today.
2: All right, so my topic this week hopefully should be a bit more of an upper than your two topics.
0: Well, we brought it pretty far down. Yeah. So pretty, that you brought it pretty far down.
2: We're we're gonna venture out into the ocean for the Great. for my topic this week. Um, I just want to get a get an idea for. What you all know of how people name things in the ocean?:
1: what Just a little of things? bit. You're talking about so, animals or like- yeah, what are about you- the
2: animals? So a lot of what I've noticed personally, I don't know if you, you all have noticed, is that humans tend to name things in the ocean based on their experiences with animals on land, so you get creatures like: oh, interesting.: A seahorse. <gasps> For sure. example,
0: okay. Are there gotcha? Lionfish. Any fish. other animals? Lionfish. I was just assuming it? you just pick a dead white guy and name it after them, but or I mean, that's something, something where you're going.
1: Pick something that's not a fish and call it a fish.
0: It'll be like a bird's right. lionfish or something like that. Like a starfish. That's right. not a fish. Starfish. Yeah. Not a fish. Yep. Yep. If it's got, if it's in the water, it's a fish. There you go. Right.
2: So, thecosomata is a clade of animals it ends up being a suborder of pelagic so open ocean swimming
0: okay sea snails oh sea snails that's
2: cute sea snails
0: oh that sounds yeah. so much better than incendiary bats right or so, invasive tree snakes ex- or invasive wait snails. they're not invasive yes. sea snails are they they don't like turn you into a zombie and suck your brain juices or anything.
2: Zombi? No, they don't. They don't. To be these fair, are that's more of a Victoria beautiful.
0: topic, so I'd be surprised.
2: <laughs> Next so, week, guys. There we go. So these animals are holoplanktonic opithio branch gastropod mollusks.
0: That just rolled off your tongue. That's so <laughs>
2: It's ma- mouthful, so it means can that can you they explain live...
0: to mere mortals what that means?
2: Yes, because I had no idea what that meant. I understood some of the words, but I did make sure to make a note of what that meant in actual English language. Okay. Uh it means that they live in the open water column, which is what the holoplanktic planktonic the holoplanktonic part means of that. They live in the water column their entire lives as a like a planktonic being. They don't ever move forward like other sea snails or sea yeah sea slugs.
1: You're saying they just float around. They don't swim.
2: Yes. So they can't swim against a current ever. They just float along. And they're a complex type of invertebrate sea snail. That's what that whole thing means. Okay.
0: We can't we can't make anything easy in science, can we?
2: No, not ever. (laughs) Uh, So most of these sea snails have a very small calcified shell. Uh, These shells are generally either a centimeter or less in length. Uh, They're very fragile. They're very thin. And they're mostly colorless when it comes to their shells and the shells themselves.
0: When, um, when you say colorless, uh, do you mean uh, like lacking pigmentation, but they're like white from calcium or are they more transparent?
2: They're more transparent generally. See-through okay. Okay. snails. See-through nice. snails. Now, they also, their foot. Now, a snail, generally, when we think of like a land snail, it its foot is what is attaching itself to whatever rock or... Surface that it's on. It's what it uses to move around. Now, this is in the open water column. So it's changed its foot. It's evolved its foot into two wing like lobes, also known as parapodia, which help very slowly to propel it through the sea. Because even though they generally can't swim against a current, they are able to move vertically in the water column and they ah. do that daily actually okay. so at mm-hmm. nighttime they will rise up to around the surface and will filter feed and try to eat we'll get into that in a minute and they'll go down when the sun is up up to a 100
0: meters down oh that's deep
2: wow a 100 yeah.
0: meters that's not yeah. just like kind of going down a little bit that's well oh, wow. that's
2: really deep yeah
0: so they, they, they're, they're pretty mobile
2: they're pretty mobile they just can't do much and but the reason why I bring up the form of that foot though is this is where the common name for these comes from and it's called a sea butterfly
0: oh mm. and so sweet. it was named after something on land
2: it was Named after something on land. Um, There are similar uh, animals that I'm actually... A separate clade that I'm actually going to talk about another time um, later when you have forgotten about sea butterflies. Uh, But they're just so fascinating because they're pretty small in general. Like, they're found in waters anywhere from the Arctic to the Antarctic, all over in the tropics. They're found just about everywhere. And they're really important in the food chain themselves. Most of the time, they are passive plankton feeders, but they can switch up into a active, into active feeding, where what they do is they create a mucus web where they can oh. entangle their planktonic food and like bring it towards their mouth.: They make their own fishing Of that. sorts. They make their own fishing net.
0: Wow. Wow.
2: Yeah. And it's wild. It's really wild. It, they're just, they're beautiful. But the entire sea butterfly, depending on the species, they can either about, and I'm not joking, this is the sizing that uh, was used in the notes that I, or in the research I was using. They're, they can either be lentil sized, mm-hmm. <laughs> or up to the size of an orange. So they're not that big.
1: Well, wait, but wait oranges I, at come the beginning in a you were talking about centimeters, yeah. and now we're talking about orange size?
2: Right. So the shell itself is what is that small.
0: Oh, we're talking about the, the, the pseudopoda. We're talking like about the, the
2: actual entire sea butterfly gotcha. can either be the size of a lentil or it can be up to the size of an orange. So if it's that big,
1: it's not going to wow. fit into its own shell.
2: Not really, which is why when they get frightened, uh, or if science is coming to collect them, uh, to try to like <laughs> study is them, to collect you, it will. Science is coming for you. Um, they will go into their shell into something that's the size of like a pencil eraser, and they can't fit, and the shell will break. Oh, um,
0: horrible!
2: Which isn't great. It uh, is a little sad. <laughs> Correct. Most of the science Rachel, has gotten this better. This is supposed to be cheerful. Come I on. know. I know. This was supposed to be cheerful. So, science, generally speaking, has gotten a lot better at gaining, or science has gotten a lot better at developing methods to not harm the sea butterflies when they are collecting them for research purposes and a lot of scientists are really interested in these uh animals right now and i'm sorry i'm going to bring it down a little bit because they are actively being seen to be affected by ocean acidification i'm really sorry guys (laughs) Um, so Because their shells are so thin, some of the shells in the Antarctic, because of the acidity levels in the ocean, they're actually dissolving the shells of some of these species. Not all of them. Some of them seem to be fine, but others are getting dissolved shells. It's really bizarre, and science is trying to figure out what is going on, but it is a really interesting indicator species, and honestly, sea butterflies are objectively beautiful they look there's a ton of different species of them and they're beautiful and we've gotten a lot better about how to photograph them so that way they're easier to study and so we don't accidentally break their shells or anything like that um and that's all I really have for you all today is just Sea butterflies, you know, they're pretty cool.
1: We're going to have to get some pictures up there.
2: Um,
0: oh, I, I have some. I also have a challenge for people on uh, wherever you find us online. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you know, if you can think of a land animal that is named after a sea animal,
1: hmm.
0: shout out to us on social media and let us know, because that'd be a fun challenge.
1: That does I like, like a that a lot. challenge.
0: Hopefully, it'll be more fun than our downer of an episode here this week. Uh, If this is your first episode, I want to tell you it's not always all downer topics all the time. Uh, Next week, we'll be back with more fun adventures. Thanks for coming uh, along on the journey today. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange. <clears throat> oh, boy. <laughs> oh, this is going to be quite a ride. I got to stop laughing because this is not, not a funny topic. <laughs> The first line is, oh god, it's a downer. (laughs) Oh good, we're continuing. I've got the giggles now and it's like I can't start laughing on this one because it's about lots of people dying. Oh good. (sighs) Mine's cheerful. Good, good. Okay. (sighs) Okay.